Welcome to the Daily Stoic Podcast, where each weekday we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, a short passage of ancient wisdom designed to help you find strength and insight here in everyday life. And on Wednesdays, we talk to some of our fellow students of ancient philosophy, well-known and obscure, fascinating and powerful. With them, we discuss the strategies and habits that have helped them become who they are and also to find peace and wisdom in their actual lives. But first, we've got a quick message from one of our sponsors. Dell TechFest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. These tools would have been super helpful to me when I was growing The Daily Stoic, when I was writing my first book, and in fact, have been, right? The Daily Soak is built around email marketing. That may well be how you heard of this very podcast. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This must be done daily. A successful day for a Stoic is simple. It's not about having made more money or having gotten more famous or dazzled more people with your accomplishments. It's whether or not you got better. Specifically, it's whether you got better at life, more prepared for the troubles, for the temptations, for the opportunities that lay ahead. As Seneca wrote to Lucilius, the prescription for Stoicism is simple. Each day acquire something that will fortify you against poverty, against death, indeed against all other misfortunes. And after you have run over many thoughts, select one to be thoroughly digested each day. You may notice how well this fits with the idea of the one-page-a-day model of the Daily Stoic, with over a million copies sold, this daily email, over 350,000 daily subscribers, the, the Daily Stoic podcast, over 55 million downloads worldwide. All of us are engaged in that crucial task together, acquiring what we need to be fortified for the twists and turns of fate, acquiring the skills and the insights and the ideas that make us better, better humans, better citizens, better athletes, better parents, better whatevers. If we can accomplish that in the morning, no less, then the day is a success. It's not always going to be easy, but it is at least straightforward. It's the work of a lifetime measured day by day. And look, if you know anyone that might benefit from this email, from this podcast, please forward to them, give us a recommendation, rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Always appreciate word of mouth, always looking to bring more people into the fold, spread the word, find one thing a day. That's the journey we're on here at Daily Stoic.
Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. As you know, I'm a big fan of the concept of uh, daily reads. Uh, obviously, I wrote the Daily Stoic, but uh, I read a number of, of daily books. I love the Daily Drucker. I love uh, A Calendar of Wisdom. There's a, a book about workaholism that I've read for a long time called Calling It a Day. There's another one here I have on my shelf called The Courage to See. That's a passage of great literature. Uh, there's a bunch of books in this category. I don't have many in the weekly category. I guess technically the Daily Stoic Journal is a is you know a daily uh, journal, but then there's a weekly meditation. But my guest today is actually someone whose work I've known for a long time, but uh, only got to know a few years ago. I'm talking about Brad Feld, uh, who's one of the great investors of our time. Uh, and he's the founder of Techstars, uh, which is a tech incubator. And then he's the uh, founder of the Foundry Group, uh, which, is a, which is an investment company that's invested in tons of huge companies. Almost certainly you have used or benefited from uh, one of the companies that he has invested in. Um, but, but Brad has a very long catalog of books that he's written. The most recent, uh, he said, is actually inspired by the Daily Stoke, but it's The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, a book for disruptors, which he wrote with his longtime friend Dave Jilk. But the idea is, you know, one quote, one essay per week from Nietzsche that would help an entrepreneur, that would help an executive, that would help anyone sort of on some journey to greatness, if you will. And I know Nietzsche, Nietzsche can be controversial. He's certainly been co-opted and, and misrepresented by a number of groups. So that's something we definitely talk about in today's episode. Uh, but it's a great book. Uh, if you haven't read Nietzsche, it's a nice entry point into Nietzsche. I found that the daily books are a great, I mentioned Daily Daily Drucker earlier, it's a great entry point into someone. Instead of just picking up one of the books, you know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. This is a great way to just sort of do a survey course of a certain philosopher or influencer. But Brad has written a number of books. He did Do More Faster, Techstars Lessons to Accelerate Your Startup, The Startup Community Way, and a how to evolve an entrepreneurial ecosystem, which is sort of what I'm trying to build here as far as a community in Bastrop, where my bookstore and and uh, where Daily Stoke is based. Uh, his book, Startup Life, uh, Surviving and Thriving in a Relationship with an Entrepreneur is also really interesting. Look, he's written a ton of books. He's a great guy. I think you're really going to like this interview. Uh, it was fun to do. I feel like we got to nerd out about philosophy, which is always a treat to do on this show. You can follow Brad on Twitter, at Feld. Great guy. I think you're really going to like this. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're making something, if you're an artist, you should be studying philosophy. Hopefully that's why you're listening to this podcast. But uh, if you heard about it for some other reason, I think Brad's book, The Weekly Nietzsche, is, uh, is a must read. And, and I hope you enjoy this interview with me and Brad. So let's start really, really basic. Um, as a self-taught uh, student of philosophy, I know I struggle with the names. So uh, give me your pronunciation of Nietzsche. You said it correctly. It's Nietzsche. Okay. Is, is, that, is, that, uh, is, is, is that the indisputable pronunciation or, or, or are there some other acceptable ones? No, I, think that's, I think that's pretty indisputable. I, uh, 
often hear people say Nietzsche and Nitschke. Uh, uh, I think Americans struggle with German pronunciation sometimes. And when Dave, Dave Joke and I wrote the book, uh, we we had an Easter egg in a bunch of places, but one of them was in the title, which is the Entrepreneur's Weekly, which prompts you to say Nietzsche. Ah, uh, right, right. So it would rhyme alliteration with weekly. So uh, that was kind of a fun. We we would we would joke to each other about our our Nietzsche book. Yeah, I have embarrassed myself on several occasions. I, I remember once quoting Goethe and uh, and uh, being reminded, oh, it's actually Goethe, which uh, is not at all how one would think that word would be pronounced. It's 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 okay. Epicurus and all those are challenging too. You've mastered them. I do. I do appreciate Marcus Aurelius just being straight down the middle and obvious. So. Why should a founder study philosophy? I, I, I could. I was actually just reading not long ago. There was some exchange about uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and I think it was Donald Graham who was one of the early investors at Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg was telling him that, you know, he'd been given some book by a journalist, and 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 Mark was sort of at maybe twenty two, twenty three, going, I don't have time to read this book, and and Donald Graham sort of taking him aside and, and saying. No, this is actually exactly what you have to take the time to do is to read and to study and to sort of explore these classical ideas. Why should a founder, with all the things they have going on, study Nietzsche or any philosophy? I'd like to think that um, my answer is additive to what I believe your uh, your answer would be. And I'll give you a lot of credit before I answer for... Uh, I think helping make philosophy accessible to so many entrepreneurs who previously, you know, went back in time to their college time and sort of the torture that they had, you know, trying to read some of the classical philosophers, whether it was Kant or even more contemporary philosophers and just the challenge with it. Sure. Um, and, And my additive comment would be, I think the best entrepreneurs view part of their experience as entrepreneurship as a journey of the self and looking very inwardly about what is important to them, what is interesting to them, how to manage, navigate, explore, grow all aspects of themselves in the context of being an entrepreneur. I think the people who wander into entrepreneurship and view entrepreneurship as the end point of their life experience are missing out on the richness of this experience of life. And in fact, turning it on its side is what is so powerful and saying entrepreneurship is just an aspect of this experience I call life. And as a result, to really be awesome at the craft, business, experience, whatever you want to call it, of entrepreneurship, I really have to or have the opportunity to, have to is the wrong phrase, I really have the opportunity to explore myself as as a human. And as a result of exploring myself, a core part of that is to study and explore what historical, philosophical thinkers 
have thought, said, done in whatever their time is, because that's part of the experience of one's own exploration. I think that's right. And especially, you know, if you're lucky enough to be successful, right? So you start some small tech company and, you know, for the first several months or several years, you're, you know, you're maniacally focused on product and customer acquisition and all these things. But if you're lucky enough to be successful, soon enough, you're bumping into the timeless questions of philosophy, which is dealing with other people, dealing with temptation, dealing with focus, trying to find balance, you know, human psychology, a purpose, meaning, uh, you know, all, all those questions become not just part of the purview of a leader, but you could argue as the company becomes really successful, pretty much entirely what the founder should be thinking about because they they shouldn't be micromanaging all these sort of day-to-day product things. They should be, you know, thinking about where does this company fit in the world? Where is the world going? You know, how do I get the most out of the people who have decided to entrust me with their time and, uh, you know, retirement savings and, and all these things? Let's play with an important word that you said for a moment, which is meaning. Yeah. And it's it's so important because so much of entrepreneurship is filled with cliches uh, about you know what to do and how to do it or even why you should do it or you know what success and accomplishment is. But very rarely do any of those cliches land on real meaning, and often, uh, in some ways, they're really antithetical to the whole notion of meaning. And an example would be uh, the number of entrepreneurs who say, you know, I, I want to be an entrepreneur because I want to change the world. Mm-hmm. Or, I, you know, the, the Steve Jobs cliche of I want to put a dent in the, you know, are you, are you going to put a dent in the universe? And, and sort of the whole notion that an entrepreneur is approaching that extraordinary impact, right, to change the world in such a casual statement, right? My goal of creating this company is to change the world. What does that actually mean? Yeah, that's only the first part of the sentence, right? What are you trying to, why, not just why are you changing the world, but what change? I mean, a lot of horrible people have changed the world too for the worse. And it's a, there's a lot of things, you know, where you say, well, I changed the world, and it's like, yeah, except for for the last, you know, 2,000 years, that change happens every 20 years. Oh, sure. <laughs> every sure. 30 years. Like, you, you didn't really change the world. You just played a pattern that keeps playing out over and over again. And, and that's just at the functional level of the business. Then you think about, you know, the behavior of the person um, and, you know, the experience that you have and, and play with another word, which is why. Well, why are you doing this? What is the meaning uh, of of what you are doing? You know, what what is your own why? Yeah. And as you, you know, have failure or success or some of both, does the why change? And interestingly, do you ever accomplish your why? And then what? And these are all real questions about being a human and being, you know, part of the species on this planet. And it doesn't have to do with 2021. It could, right? You can instantiate it in 2021. <laughs> but 
in in the context of long arc of meaning, what again does that matter? And I think entrepreneurs who don't spend any time going deep on that within themselves, and frankly, it's entrepreneurs or people, are missing such a huge element of of the experience of existence. And at the core, that's the essence of of philosophy. Uh, over a long period of our species. Yeah. To flash forward, you mentioned the idea of these trends happening every 20 or 30 years, and that, that, that's a hint at, uh, at Nietzsche's you know, sort of concept of eternal recurrence. But I, I am struck, for instance, and I remember being struck reading at you know, 20 years old, Marcus Aurelius, and you have this incredibly powerful, successful person who did change the world, sort of meditating on not how meaningless it was, but that it didn't mean what he thought it was going to mean, or, or he was sort of, it's like he got to the top of the mountain and he wanted to tell people like, hey, don't give up your entire life to get up here because it's not exactly what you think. I, I am amazed, you know, the number of people who get into entrepreneurship because they want to be the richest or they, they, they want to like do this thing that they've seen other people do, even though if you look closely at it, those people sort of also warn against trying to do that. So there, there's this weird tendency where we're all chasing this thing and then conveniently forgetting that uh, people have gotten there before us and, and come back to, to say like, hey, make sure you're doing this for the right reasons. Well, the, the very powerful ending arc of that, um, I... I I keep a copy of of your book, The Daily Stoic, in in the bathroom, <laughs> and, and each morning I read whatever that day is, and um, uh, I particularly like December because you know December is about mortality and death, right. and, and I'm reading a book right now called um, uh, Quantum. Uh, oh, I lost the last name of it. Um, uh, it's by David Kaiser, and it's it's sort of about he's a, he's a physicist and a historian, and it's sort of about the different arcs of quantum thinking and all the different things that have happened along the way, uh, and it's both the the, the specifics and the um, uh, sort of the philosophy of it, and this notion that you know there's this big struggle in quantum physics today around, you know, the Big Bang starting 14 billion years ago and the different philosophies of, or the different thesis, I don't want to say, the I guess they're theories. I was going to say thesis, but I guess they're really theories of, well, what happened immediately before the Big Bang? And if the universe, is the universe really infinite or is it finite? And then there's now the multiple parallel universe theory that is picking up some steam is that there's this continual instantiation of multiple parallel universes. And this whole notion that as a, as a human being, right, you know, our lifespan is less than, um, uh, less than a hundred years or hundred years would be a, a very long life for somebody. And the idea that we're 14 billion years into the existing universe that we're in as current, uh, uh quantum philosophy has, and then on top of all of that, the notion that if you sort of scale way back and look at it, it's kind of no different than 
in some ways, a different flavor of religion, right? It's the creation myth of the universe and the role of humans in the context of the universe. And today we have such a deep understanding in just in the last hundred years of so much more of what's going on than, you know, 2000 years ago in terms of the mechanics of everything. But if you go back 2000 years and you think about this notion of meaning, those patterns play out over and over and over again, right? The, the, the Joseph Campbell hero arc, the incredibly successful person who dies unhappy or, or penniless or some tragedy occurs along the way. And even though they had incredible success, um, you know, the loss of child, family, country, whatever. I mean, these things just play out over and over and over again, and we imbue so much meaning in them. Philosophy and studying philosophy and applying it to our lives gives us a moment to really step back and go deeper on the meaning to us. Forget about the meaning to everyone else. Forget about what we're told is important. But that introspection and playing around with it is, is so powerful. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts, discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Well, and then it's, it's sort of part of the job, right? So obviously flattered that uh, the Daily Stoke is in your bathroom. And what I love about the idea of the weekly Nietzsche is that it's, it's not something you read one time, but that you're supposed to go through it over and over and over again, that it's this ongoing process. I am curious, like when you, for, for me, the idea of the Daily Stoic 
was was uh, the idea that you know you don't read the Stoics once. There's not the right Stoic to start with, and it's sort of what's your entry point, and then how do you sort of get in this loop about it. Um, Another great book that that I love that I recommend to people is is uh, a calendar of wisdom, which is Tolstoy uh, sort of collecting his his sort of best greatest hits from his own writing and from the people that influenced him. But when you were thinking about weekly versus daily, wa- walk me through why you why you decided weekly. Sure, and and just a, a footnote: uh, the book from Kaiser that I was mentioning a few moments ago is Daily Legacy. Or, uh, okay. sorry, Quantum legacies. Quantum legacy. Okay. Um, so, well, a couple things on weekly instead of daily. For starters, it's and and we we say this in the book. We acknowledge acknowledge you. The inspiration for weekly was you. Oh. And in a lot of ways, the inspiration for the book was was you and what you had done with stoicism in the context of of business and entrepreneurship. And when Dave. Uh, my co-author Dave and I started talking about it, and Dave Jilk was my first business partner. So we've been best friends and worked together on various things for over 30 years now. So this was a really fun project for both of us to do. You know, we're both solidly in midlife. I'm 55. He's he's uh, he's approaching 60. Um, and you know, the ability or the opportunity for us to do a project like this that had some reflections from us was was significant, but it's important to start with the inspiration. And uh, we actually started working on the project going back to 2013. So it was before the Daily Stoic had come out, but you were just starting to come out with uh, with your books. And I remember when the Daily Stoic came out, we had written a bunch of stuff, but it was sort of slow and we we're playing around with things. And I said, let's do something like like this. And we talked about it a little bit, and we're like, "Geez, 365 Nietzsche quotes. That that sounds just like a little too much, <laughs> a little too much for anyone, including us, to put together a book with that many of them." So uh, we we'd probably come up with at that time maybe 20 or 30 quotes that we felt like, you know, from from different parts of Nietzsche applied to entrepreneurship, and we said, "Let's do a weekly version." Uh, so that's that's where the weekly instead of the daily came out. Then one of the things that uh, I think you did brilliantly with the Daily Stoic is, you know, you put a you had 12 themes, one for each month. And then you put out, um, you know, a, a, an essay that was less than a page. And I think that's very it's incredibly powerful because it's very digestible and it get, it creates a rhythm. I mean, I don't know how many times I've read the Daily Stoic now, probably three or four, you know, just sort of beginning to end uh, on a daily basis. I read it all the way through once, but uh, that kind of a cadence. Nietzsche was was different. We As we played with Nietzsche, we realized that Nietzsche is much less giving advice um, in, in his philosophy. What Nietzsche is doing and in, in his... Uh, 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 cliche about Nietzsche or uh, often quoted line about him. He's very misunderstood uh, as a philosopher, and I hope we get to spend a few minutes talking about that. Of course. But he's he's incredibly important as a philosopher because he's really the crossover between classical and contemporary philosopher. He's the bridge, at least in my mind. And one of the uh, cliches is that he philosophizes with a hammer, and he, he really is a, the classic disruptor. The subtitle of this book is a book for disruptors. 
And, you know, the word disruptor is so overused in entrepreneurship to the, today. But, but we, we built on it, which is this notion that uh, what Nietzsche did was he challenged so much of conventional philosophy and conventional wisdom, but by smashing it with a hammer. He was provocative. He was aggressive. He was willing to contradict himself. He was trying to get people to think. He was not saying this is the answer. He was saying, think about this thing and how you relate to it and how you relate to it in the world. And as a result, giving each of these quotes a week felt better than a day because for a lot of these, if you read the Nietzsche and you read his quote, it, 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 it means nothing. You can't, pro like, I, I have to read it out loud three or four times, like reading poetry. You have to read it slowly and sort of the words are beautiful and powerful and unique. And it's, of course, you know, English translation of late, late 1800s German. So it's, it's colorful, but it's chewy. And so what we tried to do was take the, the Nietzsche quote, we then would sort of transliterate or translate it, I guess is a better word, into contemporary English. And then we wrote an essay. And the essays, we couldn't do two or three paragraphs. The essays were two or three pages. Not saying, here's how you apply this quote to entrepreneurship. But here's what this quote makes us think about in the context of entrepreneurship. And here's some contradictory ideas, and here's some ideas that we, we used to think about this, and now we think about this. And then for about half of them, there's an essay from an entrepreneur, maybe two-thirds of them. And, and in a few cases, there are entrepreneurs whose names people will recognize, but many of them are not. We, we chose entrepreneurs you know, from our very extended network, but people who are not famous entrepreneurs, they're not intended to be sound bites from you know, super successful, rich, famous people but practical stories where we gave each entrepreneur um, the, the quote and our translation and said, write an essay about what this speaks to you about. And we didn't edit the essays. We let them be blog posts and we fixed the commas and made sure the quotation marks and the punctuation were in the right places and stuff like that. But we, we let them be in the person's voice rather than in our voice, again, to show and to, to try to give people the tools to reflect and in some ways be able to have a practicum, practicum around it. You know, you, you, you're not reading to learn what you should learn from Nietzsche's quotes. You're being provoked by Nietzsche and hopefully by us and stimulated maybe is a better word than provoked to reflect on your own experiences as an entrepreneur, whether you're super experienced or just beginning, against the backdrop of this very uh, important, provocative, stimulating, again, I'm using the same words because those are the words that we, we try to get through, uh, philosopher, uh, and, and as, as, as it applies to entrepreneurship. Yeah, I, I struggled with Nietzsche the, the first time that I sort of picked up a, 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 all of his books, actually. And I think the, the breakthrough that I had for him before your book was Stefan Zweig's uh, little biography of him. He, he's not an 
he's not an easy philosopher to get into. And I think, I think there is something special about either breaking it down in a day or a week, because then you are spending just the way that a philosophy student wouldn't, wouldn't read one author for a, a week. They, they would spend a year or three months or, you know, you'd spend, you'd spend time, a guided sort of exploration of the, of the person's thinking. Uh, I, to me, that's that's just much more immersively close to how you pick up ideas in philosophy. Very well said, and and uh, I mean, to this day, I, you know, I, I I continue to read the original uh, the original Nietzsche uh, works. Dave read them much faster than I did, or I should, faster is the wrong word. He he was systematic about it. And you know when I when I pick up and read, um, I, I read Beyond Good and Evil, uh, which is you know one of the better known books by Nietzsche. And I think the first time I read it, I understood almost nothing. And then I read a bunch of stuff about Beyond Good and Evil, and I started to understand what Beyond Good and Evil was about. And then I went back and read it again after we'd been working on the book for a long time. I read it maybe a year ago, and it, it was such a different experience to read it then. Uh, in in our book, we have a chapter that uh, near the end we have an, a, a couple of chapters in the appendix, and the, you know those chapters we have uh, it's about ten page essay on on Nietzsche's life and legacy, so you just sort of get a sense of Nietzsche. We also have about a twenty page section on don't believe everything you hear about Nietzsche because there's so much. Uh, misinformation, especially today, uh, about Nietzsche because he's been co-opted by so many uh, different different entities and people along the way. And I was going to ask you about that because that's one of the things that I get from people. The sort of connection between Silicon Valley and Stoicism tends to be sort of ready-made for a you know a hit piece. Uh, trend story of like, look at all these rich white guys, you know, studying a philosophy, you know, designed by slave owners 2000 years ago, it sort of writes itself as as far as like, uh, you know, wanting to uh, wanting to manipulate something to to make it look preposterous or evil. Nietzsche's like that times 50. What do people miss about Nietzsche? Like, I almost feel like when people hear the name, they almost have some kind of visceral reaction that it's somehow like a Nazi philosophy or that it's somehow, you know, uh, from an insane person, you know, or it's just from some deeply unpleasant person that they, that they, that, you know, they associate it with some deeply uh, unpleasant or pretentious person that, you know, was in grad school with them. And, and uh, they, they just have this sort of negative, uh, negative understanding of it. What do people get wrong about Nietzsche? Yeah, there's a long, long list. And the, the irony of what people get wrong about Nietzsche in some ways is that many of the things that he's, a, he's accused of are the opposite of what he believed and how he believed. Uh, and I'll give a couple of examples. One, uh, one is that he's, he's a Nazi. Uh, another is that he was, you know, uh, a huge advocate of everything around German nationalism and Nazism because of, you know, the, the 
his time frame. He had an association with Wagner. Um, and so there was this whole linkage to, because of Nietzsche's association to Wagner, therefore he must be a Nazi. And then, of course, anti-Semitism. Uh, I'm Jewish, so anti-Semitism flows right into that. So it turns out that not only was Nietzsche not a Nazi, um, he was he was stateless. He renounced his citizenship or statehood. He was extremely opposed to nationalism and, and German nationalism. He broke with uh, Wagner. Their relationship fractured, a very close relationship that fractured when Wagner started to embrace nationalism. And of course, you know, that carried on to Wagner being uh, essentially co-opted by the Nazi party. Um, it is important to get the timelines right. Uh, Nietzsche did most of his writing between 1860 and 18, the late 1880s. Uh, he went insane in 1890, uh, and he died in 1900. When he died, his sister uh, inherited his literary estate, and it turns out she became uh, a Nazi. Ah, and as part of that, she released uh, a book called The Will to Power, uh, which was essentially uh, edited, arranged, and published by her. Her name was Elizabeth. And The Will to Power was not Nietzsche's book, even though it's a, it's a book that is often attributed to him because you know much of it came from his notes and lectures and all the manuscripts that he had. But she arranged it in such a way to support the thesis of, of the Nazis. And as a result, the book is a, a, a perversion, really, of you know, the magnum opus that probably it would have been uh, a very, very different book if Nietzsche had written it. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, like the, the layers of this stuff are so wild uh, you know, he, he did go insane. He was always sickly and infirmed. And there's a, you know, if you, you go online, you very quickly go down the rabbit hole of, uh, he got syphilis from, uh, a prostitute in a brothel. And yet there's also this long arc of Nietzsche not being particularly, uh, sexual. And in fact, his whole experience with, uh, uh, being in a, in a brothel one time is, you know, his intense desire to get out of the brothel because he was so uh, disgusted by, it's probably the wrong word, but so unhappy with it. So you have all of these things that as you go down the rabbit hole of, uh, of Nietzsche himself um, are, are contorted. And, you know, you, you there's a, a thread about uh, misogyny and sort of the, the things that he said about women. And yet, if you actually look at his uh, relationship uh, with women and you, you sort of think about the times, again, the late 1800s, um, the, the dynamics, you know, was he uh, an idealist, idealistic uh, male who was, uh, you know, treated women equally in that context? Absolutely not. But was he an extraordinary misogynist? Not at all relative to, uh, you know, the context. So I put all that out there, not in a defense of Nietzsche, but it's actually one of the challenges of our contemporary society, which is, and I'll just pick on one specific example. 
in the U.S., when the alt-right uh, uh, movement really became visible, I don't remember, 2017, 2018, and, and became kind of the front, front and center thing that was going on in politics um, uh, in the U.S., and this whole notion of white nationalism um, again became emergent uh, in a in a in a significant way, and for me, a deplorable way. Again, in a, a, a American Jew, second generation, um, you know, probably wouldn't be here if my uh, mother's father, who emigrated from Russia, hadn't been able to get to the U.S. from Russia because would have been wiped out in Russia, you know, by the pogroms. Um, the the whole notion of the alt right co-opting Nietzsche and saying Nietzsche is our philosophical inspiration. Dave, Dave and I went on this journey to try to find that. And, and we write, write about this in a book. What we found was um, one reference to Nietzsche that was affiliated with Richard Spencer, a well-known sure. you know, participant in the alt-right, that was then amplified hundreds or thousands of times through contemporary media. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter just like a couple weeks weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10. When you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash, that's that's code Daily Stoic. Order using DoorDash today for eligible users only. Terms apply. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free terms and conditions apply. When it, it it's sort of like, you know, Nietzsche or the Stoics would would want nothing to do with these losers. Uh, if, you know, if they could actually, uh, if, if they knew how their work was being perceived by these people, I think they would be the, the first and the fastest to disavow themselves from even the slightest association with 
with these uh, with these people who are pretending to be the heirs to the mantle. But it builds on top of it even more significantly. So a friend of mine, after we came out with the book, sent me a note um, about Steven Pinker's book, Enli- The Enlightenment or Enlightenment. I can't remember the, the full title. And he said, you know, what? what's your reaction to what uh, what Pinker says? And I'm like, I don't know. I hadn't, hadn't read the book. So I grabbed the book uh, online and I just went and read the the sections about Nietzsche. And he he refers to Nietzsche over and over again as this horrific human being and this uh, abysmal philosophy. I mean, the words are so aggressive. And yeah, everybody's allowed to have their own point of view, but it's out of the context of what the actual meaning is. And, you know, so then I, you know, expanded out and read the kind of sections that the Nietzsche stuff was in. And I'm like, wow, this has nothing to do with what Nietzsche is trying to say in his philosophy. So over and over again, it gets, you know, the dynamics are reinforced, which just comes back to the point you made, which is, and maybe what we started with is it's not that the goal of our book is to tell you what the answers are, nor do we believe Nietzsche is telling you what the answers are. What Nietzsche is doing is he's stimulating thinking, and we've chosen what we think are uh, quotes from Nietzsche's very broad body of work. I'm, I'm going to give an example to end this, so it ends on a specific yeah. example. Uh, to stimulate thinking among entrepreneurs, and I'm going to use one from early in the book, and uh, it's uh, the, the the chapter is called "Finding Your Way." I think Ryan, you'll You'll, rec- you'll, ref- you'll, you'll see this because it is, it is one of the ones that comes up a lot in Stoicism. Um, the Nietzsche quote is, and I'm going to try to read it with emphasis correct, this is now my way, where is yours? Thus did I answer those who asked me the way, for the way, it does not exist. So I'm just going to read that first sentence again. This is now my way. Where is yours? So our translation of this, in other words, people often ask me how to do something. I tell them how I do it, but then I ask them how they're going to do it because there is no one way to do something. If you think about that in the context of mentorship, entrepreneurship, um, accomplishment, success, failure... You know, the cliche, you learn more from failure than you do from success. But this notion that the idea that there is uh, one way to do something is is completely nonsensical. In entrepreneurship, especially among venture-backed companies, you often hear the phrase playbook. Uh, investors have a playbook. We have a playbook. This is how we're going to execute our playbook. And I keep thinking that I'm just going to come out with a book that's called the the Entrepreneur's Playbook or the VC Playbook uh, that's 300 pages long. And the first book, uh, the first page is the title page. It says, you know, the, the Entrepreneur and VC's Playbook. And the other 299 pages are blank. Yeah, there's a great line from Epictetus. He says, you know, you ask me uh, to tell you what to do. And I say, wouldn't it be better to be made adaptable to circumstances? Um, the idea that anyone can tell you what to do uh, or the playbook is to sort of miss the entire point. They can give you principles, they can give you practices, but every situation, every journey is totally unique and you've got to figure out your own way through it. 
Right on. So, I, you know, hearing what you're saying, I think it's almost like Nietzsche is, a, is cursed by the fact that he's a very quotable philosopher, but a very difficult philosopher to read. So his quotes are genius, but his books are hard. And there is no like sort of singular Nietzsche book where you're like, this is it. So that almost primes him kind of like a Machiavelli or something to be wildly abused and, you know, sort of uh, contorted to fit one's purposes, but at the same time, very poorly understood. I think that's right. Um, there's a, a, a good uh, translation of a book it's just called Nietzsche by uh, uh, Lou Salome, who he had a they didn't have a, a, a sexual relationship, but they had a, a, an emotionally intellectual relationship for uh, some period of time. And it was a very important uh, sort of as a couple. It was, and it was actually a threesome between him, uh, her, and, and, and another close friend of Nietzsche's and a close friend of hers. And the translation of, of that book, which I think the best translation, let me look it up real quick. The best translation, the translation I read was by Siegfried Mandel, um, is in some ways uh, helpful there because it gives you sort of this frame of reference to navigate through everything. The interesting thing about Nietzsche's writing is that he didn't write, you know, he didn't write a diary and he didn't write a novel, and he didn't write a long academic treatise. Classical philosophy would have been, you know, a long academic treatise with lots of referring back to other things and building on other things. He wrote poetry. He wrote songs. He wrote anecdotes. Uh, he wrote all mixtures of things. He wrote some long arc stories, but the long arc stories were interjected with all kinds of stuff. So in in a lot of ways, uh, the the writing has a feeling of being chaotic, but if you're willing to give it the time, um, it's actually quite understandable. And that's the issue. It's again, it's, it's very hard. I mean, it's, it, I don't read German, I read English, right? So I'm sure. reading translations of German from 1870s and the translations often are from, you know, the 19, uh, Walter Kaufman's probably the best translator, 1940s or 50s or something like that. And so even the translations are not, you know, the, the words matter a lot. And um, I had an exchange with Dave once where I, uh, I read something and I misinterpreted exactly the opposite because of the words yeah. and, and my interpretation of the words. And I said, this doesn't seem right to me. This seems backwards. And, you know, he, um, uh, he very patiently with me as my as my friend and co-author said, well, this one word uh, in 18 in the 1860s means something very different than it means today. And, you know, you go look up the definition and, and you know, pick your Oxford definition. It has both definitions. Like, but the, 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 the older definition is, you know, seven lines down versus the contemporary definition. So you just have to be careful with it and be willing to sort of dig in it. But the, the fun part is because Nietzsche's words are so beautiful and his language is so beautiful, um, in some ways, it, you know, it, it does have an element of, of reading poetry where, you know, you, you sort of let yourself be immersed in it 
rather than feel like, okay, I'm on page 72 and the book has 180 pages in it and I'm almost halfway done. Um, an example I would give you, another quote that I just love that's so powerful contemporaneously um, is from a section we call, we title Monsters. And again, the, the this is the... the, is, the trans- is this the beware those who fight monsters? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and most of, we, we used open source translations. So most of these translations are from the early 1900s so that they would be public domain. Um, He who fights with monsters should be careful lest he thereby become a monster. And if thou gaze long into an abyss, the abyss will also gaze into thee. And the other, in other words, and this applies to all aspects of life. If your opponents are bad people and, and, you know, you get to judge what a bad people or a bad person is. If your opponents are bad people, there is a risk that you will also become a bad person. If you become too familiar with bad behavior, it may start to seem normal and infect your own thinking. And think of all of the entrepreneurial experiences where the idealistic view of the entrepreneur at the origin of their business or early in the life of their business and their strong moralistic statements about how they were going to put whatever you want between quotes in a positive, moralistic, idealistic way when they became very large, successful companies were almost the behavior of their organizations and their own behavior was almost antithetical to what they said at the beginning. Yep. Yep. No, and I think it's a cautionary tale where we are sort of politically and culturally now where you have sort of one significant chunk of the American population that sort of embraced the absolute worst and most shameless sort of uh, elements of the human psyche it's 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 effective because it catches us so off guard and it can be doubly uh dangerous in that it motivates you to go to the extremes in response it makes you so angry that you can lose sight of what you believe in what the what what the norms are what the principles are it's a it's a dangerous it's a dangerous situation and i think that quote is amazing Here's another here's another fun one to play with that I was I was just looking at a couple that I felt were really sort of reflective of stoicism um, in different ways, but added to and and this one is uh, kind of delightful because I think it was either yesterday's or this morning's it was it was today's uh, from the daily uh, daily stoic in the pragmatism section. So the the title for us is work is reward of the chapter. And the quote is, but there are still, sorry, but still there are rarer men who would rather perish than work without delight in their labor. The fastidious people, difficult to satisfy, whose object is not served by an abundant profit, unless the work itself be the reward of all rewards. And uh, in other words, there are rare individuals who would rather die than work without enjoyment. Such people are very particular about the quality of the work and making money is secondary to the reward of the work itself. And, 
you know, from yesterday in, in uh, or sorry, from today in pragmatism, we can work anyway. And it's a quote from uh, Rufus in lectures. Indeed, how could exile be an obstacle to a person's own cultivation or to attaining virtue when no one has ever been cut off from learning or practicing what is needed by exile? I know. And I love that. Isn't it great? And you start off with a with a Teddy Roosevelt quote, and I'm a big Teddy Roosevelt fan, so it made me smile when I read it this morning. Late in his life, after surgery, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was told he might be confined to a wheelchair for the remainder of his life, remainder of his days. With his trademark ebulence, he responded, all right, I can work that way too. <laughs> and uh. you know, think about as humans, how much of our existence is spent doing things that we that that we feel i mean either obligated to do or uh, or oppressed by and I, I mean i i've talked very openly about my own struggles with mental health as an entrepreneur and as an investor and uh, as an adult and i will say that part of what has been so helpful to me in the last decade uh, with my own mental health is not recognizing or or configuring things so that every single thing I do is fun. I mean, I do lots of shit that's not fun. That's the nature of the kind of work we do. But that the work itself is the reward, not the outcome. And so whether it's a successful business, unsuccessful business, the relationship is uh, one that ends up successful or not whether the specific thing that's creating a lot of anxiety for all the people around the system uh, is something that we can resolve or not resolve. I approach the work that I'm doing um, as the important thing, not did I make enough money and do I have as much money as the other person and was this business successful and is my ego satisfied and am I satisfying the needs uh, of, of the superego? Like it's it's a complete separation of that. I would, I would rather perish than work without delight in my labor. It, it what you're expressing reminds me, I think, of the most direct connection between Nietzsche and the Stoics. Although I, I know Nietzsche wasn't the biggest fan of the Stoics, and sometimes people get really mad when when I quote him, but. But this is the the idea of amor fati, which I learned from Robert Greene. You know, not merely to bear what is necessary, but love it. It's sort of turning those things that you have to do into things that you get to do, to accepting things as they are, making the most of them, pushing through them, understanding sort of this idea that whatever it was, it was chosen for you in some way by nature of it happening. And now... It's really about what what can you do with it, what can you make of it. To me, that's also, you know, the prescription of a of a great entrepreneur. Of course, an entrepreneur has to change reality, but and is trying to change the world. But at the same time, day to day, is you know trying to make the most of a series of shit sandwiches that that sort of seem to constantly pop up and surprise them. So well said. I mean, that's, you know, I, I like to say that entrepreneurship is uh, an endless series of experiments, most of which fail. Yes. And and when one succeeds, you figure out you do more of it. When it fails, you learn from it and you create a new hypothesis and run a new experiment. And in our in, in, in our book, 
near the end, we have a, a chart in the section on, on Nietzsche's life and legacy. And, and we have a bunch of different categories of influencers of Nietzsche and then people who he influenced. And I, I'm going to say this to make you chuckle. We have, we have one box of influencers that we call foils. And, and Socrates is one of the great foils of Nietzsche. And, and you know, a foil, of course, is, is not necessarily your, your opposer. Uh, a foil is someone who stimulates you, challenges you. And, and, you know, who you, uh, uh, you respond to, you react to, you challenge yourself. Sure. And, and so, you know, Socrates had a huge impact on, on Nietzsche, both in things Nietzsche agreed with and disagreed with, but we separated it by the way, from philosophers who influenced Nietzsche, who included deep, deeply influence, which was, you know, Schopenhauer and Hegel and Spinoza. And then as you go forward, it's very, it's, it's, inter- or, you know, it's interesting to look at some of the poets, right? Poets that influenced him included Goethe, uh, Sophocles, um, uh, Hol- Holderlin was another one that influenced him greatly. And then, of course, you know, he had enormous influence on Freud and, and Jung, uh, poets like Yeats and Rilke, artists like Rothko and Dali, um, you know, the existentialists. And so it's a very interesting dynamic and when you say you know people get frustrated with you when you quote Nietzsche I would encourage them to approach it differently and and the difference would be to view Nietzsche as some way as a complement as well as a challenger of different aspects of the Stoics and as a complement and a challenger it causes you to think harder about the specific things that are important to you, which by definition is what Nietzsche was trying to get people to do in his own philosophy, was just to get them to think harder about stuff. He was not trying to say, this is the answer. I uh, The last thing I wanted to talk to you about, and this is something you and I have connected about before, but you brought it up earlier with mental health. I remember I was, this must've been like two or three years ago now, I had been working on a bunch of stuff. I'd been traveling a lot for, for speaking. I had a bunch of projects going on. And I uh, I remember I came down with mono and uh, you and I were emailing back and forth and I told you uh, that it had happened. And, and you replied with uh, mono equals Ryan wore himself out. And it's totally true. And it was obvious that I was sort of beating the crap out of my immune system from, from overwork. It's something I sort of uh, continually deal with. Um, but I wondered how much your, your study of Nietzsche makes you think that, I don't know, when I read him and when I think about him, he seems to be someone who, who kind of like broke his own brain. I know there's some people think it's syphilis. Some people think it's cancer. There's also a part of me that wonders if he just, just sort of wore himself into some kind of dementia or insanity, the way that sometimes like genius mathematicians or physicists will do. Do, do you feel like Nietzsche burned himself out? It didn't seem like he had a, a happy life. Yeah, I, 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 have, uh, I, have, I have goosebumps from the statement. I use that, I, I use that phrase uh, myself. I, I believe that Nietzsche broke his brain. It's actually the phrase I use. Yeah. And um, if, you, if you read any of the history, you know, like the, the book I mentioned earlier, uh, the translation of the, the Lusalami book, um, you see this tortured uh, evolution. And, it, and it's not tortured because 
of um, his his lack of effort. It's that he he so stripped apart his search for meaning. Come back to that word at the beginning. And, you know, he had plenty of issues. Every human being has issues. And, you know, he had uh, much of, many of his issues were uh, health-related, both physical and mental health-related, that, uh, that grew with his intense search for meaning in the context of his philosophy. And uh, as, you know, he was extremely productive in the last decade before he went insane. And you can imagine this world, and we see it over and over again uh, with people who, they may not go, um, uh, they may not go insane in the same way that uh, we would have called it, you know, Nietzsche in, the, in, in, in 1890, but they lose their connection with reality. Yeah, they become untethered. Untethered. And you think about our contemporary world and the people that you would say, okay, make a list of people in our contemporary world who you believe have, have become untethered with reality. And um, I, I believe anybody who challenges themselves to do that regardless of their political, philosophical, uh, or functional, uh, or socioeconomic situation can make a pretty healthy list of very well-known, very famous, successful, influential people at some point who have become untethered with reality, who may still be very influential. We're high performing. Um, I think, and I think social media compounds it because now you have like, you know, Nietzsche had to write this stuff down in a book or a letter, but you know, it, he couldn't instantaneously publish it to lots of people and be validated for it. So I think you see people and, and we don't need to go into any names, but I think you see people who, you know, it becomes this vicious feedback loop where they say something and it gets attention and it encourages that sort of already, you know, fragile part of their brain. And it just goes on and on and on. And then you, you go, man, when did so-and-so turn into a, you know, a insert whatever nut? And it's, it's, uh, it's a cautionary tale for sure. It's very powerful. And and on a positive note uh, around that, I, I, the positive note is I think Nietzsche would have been incredible on Twitter. <laughs> yes. Just incredible. Sure. And I'm watching, um, uh, the docudrama Genius, the first year of it, which is Einstein, who is a, uh, another another heroic figure of mine. Yeah, and I remember reading the the the, the show is based on um, uh, 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 and I lost his name um, Thomas Thomas Friedman's book on Einstein, uh, not Thomas Friedman um, Walter Isaacson. Wal Walter Isaacson, sorry, uh, it's based on Walter Isaacson's book on Einstein, which was a, I read a lot when it came out. It was it's a very big book. It's it's very very detailed and very. Good, I think it's but his I, toughest book. Yeah, yeah, but it, but it was hard. It was hard to kind of put right. the pieces together. And um, uh, I'm watching this. I'm in about episode seven or episode eight, so I'm almost done. It's awesome. I mean, awesome. And uh, it, it, I was thinking, I, I said this to Amy the other day, Einstein would have been incredible on Twitter. And what, what the thing that happens with genius 
and and again, I want to end on a positive note because I, you know, even though Nietzsche went insane, I, I think that was just the, you know, the, the the physical instantiation of the human being at the end of his existence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have this thinking that in its time is so far ahead of other thinking, and when you look back with it, the benefit of time you say, wow, it was remarkable. I mean, Einstein's year of 1905, when he was a patent clerk and came out with four papers uh, that were, all four papers were transformational in, in physics and all of science. You think about Nietzsche's, you know, five-year stretch between the late 1870s and the early 1883 or something like that. I don't know exactly the the five-year stretch, maybe it was plus or minus two years, incredible amount of stuff that with the benefit of 150 years looking back, say that was absolute genius in the context of Germany and contemporary or uh, classical philosophy and religion and uh, non-democratic societies to be able to say those kinds of things and come up with those kinds of constructs that are so deep and so relevant today, it's a similar kind of genius that you get when you read meditations. And you say, wow, this person who has accomplished you know, the pinnacle, their internal reflections about so many different things, it's so powerful to just allow oneself in their own arc of existence to, to spend some time on it. And, you know, I, I say this over and over again to the entrepreneurs I work with and to the leaders I work with, work on yourself, yes. spend time on yourself. And as I think you, you have brought to me and many others, and hopefully we do our little part with Dave and I do our little part with this book. Part of working on yourself is to explore things, not by becoming a scholar, not by dedicating huge amounts of your life to it, but by allowing yourself to be exposed to something you might not otherwise pick up and then relate it to yourself and trust from others, you know, people that have done the deeper work, that they're surfacing relevant things to you. Yeah, and, and I would, just as a nod to your other books, I would say this is sort of related to Nietzsche and some of the people that we see go nuts, and that sounds really flippant, people people who become untethered, is that often the reason they become untethered is because either modern technology or lifestyle choices have cut the cords that typically binds one to reality. So, you know, these are people whose marriages fall apart or who, who sort of rejected the institution altogether. These are people who, you know, decided to sell all their possessions and live out of a backpack while they travel around in hotels. You know, these are people who work remotely. You know, like th- these are people who have, who have, feel no obligation to a community. You know, I, so I'm thinking of your book on, on sort of, uh, uh, you know, spouses in your book on startup communities, the the idea of it is very hard to stay sane while being smart, while being disruptive, while being ambitious, and to not have anything connecting you to other people, to a place, to community. And I wonder if that's partly what happened to, to Nietzsche as well, is he was just like sort of this lone wolf and, and it kind of turned on himself at some point. 
Well, really well said, because if you look at his arc, I mean, he spent an enormous amount of time alone and over, you know, sort of later and later in his in his professional time, he was even more and more isolated. And uh, I think that, you know, one can be isolated and be surrounded by people. Yes. And that's a lesson of modern society. And we just went through this period of time with the pandemic, right, where you're physically isolated from others. And, you know, we, we can be endlessly surrounded by people and physically isolated. But are you surrounded by people who are good for you? Are you surrounded by people who are creating, to you know, the, the feedback loop that's healthy in your own growth and development? And I, I, I know many who my answer when I would point at them and say, that person is not surrounded by healthy people. Right. Right. No, I, I mean, this is uh, the, the tragedy of, uh, of Tony Shea, for example, somewhat recently. Sad, sad, but powerful example of, of, you know, somebody who, you know, I, uh, I was fortunate to have a little bit of a relationship with Tony and spend a little bit of time with him, uh, and, and know him a little bit. And my experiences with him, fortunately, were all magnificent, but they were also dated. They were probably six, seven, eight years ago. And it's, it's such a great example of what happens when you're not surrounded by when you're not healthy or you're not surrounded by healthy people. Well, and when you're considerable genius and drive, all the virtues can can be twisted and turned around. It, it can, can start to either eat at you or eat at those sort of ropes that we were talking about that keep you tethered to reality. All of a sudden, your disruptiveness is, you know, disrupting your own rhythm and sanity and and yeah it's 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 not uh you're not disrupting the shoe market you're disrupting the sort of stability of your own life and i think we want to we want to look at those people whether it's nietzsche or tony not not from a place of judgment but from a place of sort of sobering humility that like you know sort of there but for the grace of God, go I. Like it, it, I think that can happen to anyone. And part of the reason you want to study philosophy is to learn from those people and where, where, how that can happen. I feel like. Yep. I, 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 I would end with love, right? Yes. I mean, at the essence, it's uh, you know, some people, some, many people have a strong desire to be loved, and even if you don't have a strong desire to be loved. Um, you know your 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 own reflection on yourself uh, and your own you know growth and development over this finite journey you know as as a living human being is one where even you know even in well, go back to entrepreneurship you know even the failures even the super difficult things you can emerge from them with lessons whether they're your failures, other people's failures. And I, I, I love what you said, Ryan, is that no judgment. It's not a judgment on the person. It's not a judgment of what happened or what they became, but it's to look at it empathetically and to learn from it in ways that can be powerful. And that is so much of the value, for me at least, of reflecting on the Stoics on reflecting on Nietzsche and reflecting on other, uh, not just philosophers, but other people 
you know, I used Einstein earlier as an example that I, I, I learned from who had many, many weaknesses and lots of challenges, but also had incredible strengths. And trying to understand how in the context of, you know, the finite life that I have, how I can have the experience that is the most powerful. And, you know, that's what we, we hope this book helps a tiny bit with. I think it does. Brad, thanks so much. It's a, it's a fantastic book and uh, part, of my, part of my weekly routine now. Uh, well, congrats on the bookstore. I hope it shows up on the shelves there. <laughs> it will, it will. Hey, it's Ryan. If you want to take your study of Stoicism to the next level, I want to invite you to join us over at Daily Stoic Life. We have daily conversations about the podcast episodes, about the daily email. We actually do a special weekend set of emails for everyone. You get all our Daily Stoic courses and challenges totally for free. That's hundreds of dollars of value every single year, including our New Year New You Challenge, which we're going to launch in January. You get a special cloth-bound edition of the best of meditations that we've done. You get a bunch of cool stuff. It's an awesome community. I've loved being a part of it. I've loved getting to meet everyone who's trying to take their study of stoicism to the next level. Love to have you join us. Check us out at dailystoiclife.com. We'd love to have you and join us on this digital stoa that, we, uh, that we've staked out together and get better every day. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. From Wondery, this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most <laughs> people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, Mom. exactly. There are so many stories of Black History that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Black 